Okay, then. I hope everybody's got something to drink and um, it's coffee. Or, I don't know, it depends on what time zone people are in. Wait, you can't drink coffee all the time? Oh, uh, yeah. Not yeah, a no, good strategy? No, no, you should definitely drink coffee all the time. I just meant if you're drinking something else, maybe. So, uh, I'm, I suppose we're all sort of, I guess, is Iowa Central? Yeah. I don't know. Yep, we're Central. Good guess. I knew it was Central America. Matt's implying that it's five o'clock everywhere or somewhere. <laughs> five o'clock. Do you need? Is there a certain time where you it has to be for you to drink? But yeah, I don't. I don't drink. Just coffee. And today I'm going crazy and mixing my coffee with hot chocolate. But it's a special hot chocolate. It's actually got mushrooms in it. Not magic though. Welcome to the Mac DevOps YVR podcast. This podcast is about the Mac DevOps YVR conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We interview guests and discuss topics around managing Macs using open source software products inspired by DevOps. Our goal is to encourage developers and IT to work together to solve problems for our community. For more information, see our website, mdoyvr.com. This is the Mac DevOps podcast. Who has read or looked over the first chapter, Jennifer? Yeah, I did DevOps this summer, but I've been um, working on an engineering degree on the side. So I've my time has been limited. But yeah, I did read the first chapter. Um, that totally falls in line with some of the stuff I've been doing classwork-wise. So it's been on my list to read. Yeah, what did you think? I, I just reread it again just uh, quickly before this, and I feel like... It does violence to me just to read about our the discipline. <laughs> I don't know because maybe because we're dealing with disasters all the time. But um, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it was just more trying to relate to what's what it is that I do now, and then kind of what I might want to do in the future. So it's it's kind of it's like every with them, they kind of got everything figured out. But on the <laughs> other hand. They they obviously have a lot to share, so I feel like there's a lot to think about um, with what mm-hmm. they've with, with what they've done. But it, it's coming at it from a, they they've solved the issue. Yeah, I feel like they're they're or Ben Trainer, I think is his name. If I'm getting that correct, yeah, Benjamin Trainer. Um, they're trying to codify it, and it's interesting how they're coming at it from the software engineering approach because I guess they were engineers or software engineers, not sysadmins or IT. So I guess that implies that they're classically trained if they're software engineers. That means they went to school and studied computer science or software engineering. It's interesting on that. I think maybe most of us or a lot of us in the IT fields or who people fell into IT are maybe not classically trained or formally trained computer scientists and we've fallen into IT. I know certainly that was my case. And I think with the, the whole inspiration for DevOps is that we're starting to write code and writing more code and, you know, it starts with automating things and then you start writing more code. And even I know recently I've been writing even more code and hopefully better code. So it's interesting that the the classically or formally trained computer scientists, software engineers meet with the IT people or uh, what did you think about that? Yeah, I think you're you're on the right track. I mean, they, you, I think they even mentioned in the pre- preface that a lot of them are PhD holders, so they're they're coming at this at a very engineering based aspect, which I'm comfortable living in. But I'm not comfortable living in with a software engineering. I'm definitely coming at this at more of an ops kind of mindset. 
but yeah, I kind of had the same thoughts as you really. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not a uh, software engineer and uh, I've been with great effort, slowly getting better at writing software and working with teams. And I mean, the whole reason for DevOps is to try and get everyone on in this, that's in the same boat as, uh, as us uh, to try to learn more. And, but yeah, I guess, uh, it can be learned on the job, I think. Have you learned a lot on the job in the sense or? I'm kind of in a place where I'm maybe looking to transition into more DevOps or SRE space. That's kind of why I've been doing this. That's why I was kind of interested in the book space mm -hmm. a little bit because my graduate degree is going to be in systems engineering. So it's very manufacturing focused class rather than software focused, which right. isn't neither one of them are really my forte um, yeah. but a lot of the a lot of the the things that i do in class is more oriented to a physical product rather than a digital or software product so right it's kind of nice to kind of see the terms used but actually used in a space that i know better than like an industrial setting <laughs> so yeah but yeah, I mean, for the most part, I'm not doing a lot of DevOps stuff at work right now. I've been trying to do more of it on my own. We, we learn stuff when we need to learn it sometimes, I think. Uh, I certainly, uh, I took a new uh, task, job, project, everything, and joined a new team where, where I think they asked me, is like, have you ever used Git, Matt? And I'm like, I have. And they're like, hmm. I'm like, okay, teach me how you guys, you know, do things and, you know corporate culture every every company has a way of doing things you know and, and and you know this new team that i've joined is like okay this is how we use git this is how we work together this is how we you know program and it seems like i certainly haven't studied every computer science program out there but i know that it seems that you know in computer science degrees they don't necessarily teach you git or version control they teach you maybe to code in my experience they do not which is unfortunate right. And my uh, my teenager, uh, she uh, started uh, a programming class, very intro basic stuff in school. But then some of the kids wanted to use GitHub and stuff, and they're like, "Nope, you're not allowed to." I mean, you know, for probably privacy, educational data, privacy laws. But I was trying to t tell my daughter that I was going to show her how to use Git and, and stuff because I was like, "This is the most important thing. Despite any language you learn, you need to learn version control. You need to use Git. You need to learn how to, you know, work with this new sort of medium." And um, I feel like that's one of the uh, important uh, sort of differences between real life uh, version control and DevOpsy or SRE or software engineering for ops versus sort of classical computer science problems. I don't know. I have a degree in computer science and I never had to take a typing class. So, you know. So they didn't, they just assumed you knew how to enter data in? <laughs> yeah. Right. With the punch card, right, JD? What was it? What were you using? Well, I mean, we chiseled it in the tablets and fed those into the, into the computer. Are you saying that they didn't teach Git or computer programming classes don't teach Git because it's just assumed or it's just not important or not as difficult to learn as the actual well, fundamentals I, I, of programming? Or Well, no, I think, I think it's more the fundamental, you know, college, university is generally teaching to the fundamentals and to the, the theory, not the tools. Kind of right? like this dichotomy between trade schools and universities where you go to a university and then you don't know how to do anything but you have to go to a trade school or to actually know how to do things and don't want to sully the uh, ivory tower with actual practical things d uh, done in the uh, real world 
Well, I mean, if you if you ran with that, when I was in high school, uh, we were all told we shouldn't be playing with Max, that we should be learning DOS because that's what we're going to use in business in the future. Well, that's not the case at all now. I mean, it's Windows, but it's it's basically a windowed operating system regardless of what platform you choose. They've all kind of coalesced to be the same. So teaching a theory is much better, you know, or not much better, but is what they're leaning towards in university versus, yeah, teaching a, a skill uh, or a particular tool. Maybe the answer is both. We need both. <laughs> it's nice to know what a for, a for loop is, right. a function, and and how to, like, you know, write good code, but it's also good to know how to version it and work with a team. <laughs> it's funny you all mention right. all this stuff because my <laughs> husband teaches programming at our ah, university. Ah. So you, you have and some good insights for us. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny because he teaches numerical methods to his students and they're aerospace engineers, so they're not computer scientists. And getting all his code submissions for their homework and stuff, he's been using the ton out of GitHub Actions to grade all this stuff. And so like every day it's like our Lord and Savior GitHub Actions is doing this thing for for me that he loves. Um so I get to hear him, he's using it more than I am. Um, but yeah, his students are upset with using Git a lot of times, but he's been getting <laughs> emails now from some of his students saying, yeah, I applied to an internship and I got it because they knew I knew how to do this thing. So mm -hmm. students are going to bitch regardless. True, true. But I think, yeah, Git, you know, wherever it is, whether it's Bitbucket, GitHub, GitLab or wherever, you know, is going to be such a useful skill. and. I know I hadn't done any, I'm, I can call myself a GitHub Chromag, you know, it's just very simple, simple version control, <laughs> like, and, uh, and, you know, I started using, um, uh, you know, branches and just sort of like taking ideas and working on them in separate, you know, branches. Yeah. Literally like separate repo, not repos, but you know, uh, you, you can code and, and get complicated in, but you know, when you're iterating changes and making small changes, it's easier to roll back. But also if you take ideas that you're working on and break it into different pieces. And, and that was a new one for me. I hadn't really ever done that before, but now a lot more people are looking at my code, <laughs> you know, so it's like <laughs> You're saying that you you weren't submitting like as small changes like previously or no, I wasn't using branches. Uh, I, I was aware of the concept of making small changes because even I like to revert my own changes. But now that other people are looking at my code or I'm or working on bigger, much bigger sort of projects that I'm coding, that you know they're, they they have different pieces to them. And so I, I was told and suggested that you know if I break these ideas into branches and then work on them in separate, you know, connections to the the original project, it helps to develop it and certainly a strategy. And I'm, I'm starting that myself. Uh, I'm still like a, a, a Git newbie it, in all truth. Um, but it's good to see different corporate culture. And I think it's an important thing when you join, a, a, you know, it's good to learn the theory, but it's good to, when you join a team to learn, to, to see the, the practices they do and what they, the techniques they use so that you can work better together, um, coding and other practices. But just to clarify, like, most of the MSREs I met at Google didn't necessarily have degrees or at least not advanced degrees. So I can't say about like the people who founded SRE, they might've had like advanced degrees, uh, but like you don't need a software engineering degree to be a good SRE. So like, 
don't let that scare anyone for diving into this book. Like Jennifer was saying, you know, in, in what we're, this book sort of tries to codify or sort of say what would make a successful site reliability engineer and what makes them a little bit different than a sysadmin. And I think one of the things that right away they say is 50% is sort of manual labor slash on-call slash manual intervention and 50% is development work. And that was an interesting, you know, if you're going to codify it, start there, I guess. Um, I think it was 50% coding uh, and then 50%, I guess, uh, dealing with uh, incidents, they said, you know, no more than two incidents per shift because um, they really want you to investigate, uh, remediate, and write that postmortem. But also, like, you don't have everything automated. Like, our no. life goal is to automate it ourselves out of a job. But while you can't do that, like, you need to do something manual. Uh, and that's what like some of that time is meant to spend on. But that's why you spend 50% of your time coding so that you can try to automate as many of those manual tasks as possible. Yeah. If you're a classical sysadmin and going from one dumpster fire to another, um, that's one way to live. And then this SRE supposes that if you spent 50% of your time, if you were allowed to as part of a team, uh, then the other half of your time is coding or trying to build an automation system, you know where I've always loved monkey or similar systems, you know, because they can make things repeatable and automated. And, you know, it's one less thing you can manually make a mistake on, hopefully. <laughs> it would be so interesting to know how many, like, manual hours were saved by systems like monkey um, and puppet and tools like that. That's where uh, we need someone like Alex Narvi, who has built like this insane FileMaker Pro API monkey report sort of uh, system where he basically can show his clients like how much time he saved, how much, how many apps he's installed, how many, you know, it's like basically part of our whole DevOps, I guess, SRE thing is if you can try and measure things and I guess for Alex and his clients or other uh, successful sysadmins or consultants that can market themselves by showing how much they've done, or I guess this works internally for teams, if you can somehow get metrics and show them. Have you had any luck with that, uh, Brandon? Um, I think in terms of like the serious practice of like including metrics in every piece of software you write, like my team isn't quite there yet, but like it's definitely something I'm thinking about all the time because if you just leave it up to like log aggregation, uh, it's much harder to like answer those questions. Right. When you're if you're writing the automation with metrics in mind, you can like write a line of code, which is like submit a metric when this particular event happens. And then it's it's much easier to like, from the very beginning, think about what you're going to report to, you know, higher mm -hmm. ups who don't care about your code, but they're interested in what it did for stability or uptime. Yeah. Yeah, we helped write this like uh, piece of code that basically it did a diagnostic on a system and it sort of like saves so much time instead of asking someone who's asking for help and support 5 million questions, you just get all the answers when they submit the support request and find it makes so much of the difference. And, you know, the difference between like just looking through logs versus getting some information right up front and I, I, I was struck by the sentence in the in the book where he's like, no one needs to look at this information at logs, um, but is recorded for diagnostic of friends purposes. The expectation is that no one reads logs unless something else prompts them to do so. Like you, you have no other way to find that information. <laughs> yeah, digging through dense logs is not fun, but you know, metrics are prettier if you if you've developed them. 
metrics and tools that find out the inf- certain information like if you're looking through logs to find out what os is someone running or what version of software or you know then that that means that you could find that information else elsewhere hopefully but yeah also if you even if you have tools instead of like <laughs> grepping through logs for like the fail or error or some other like you know, known once you start seeing known issues then maybe you need a tool that can analyze them for you and but yeah, it was nice in the in the section of the book where they're discussing the difference between, between alerts, uh, things that humans need to take action on, tickets, things that log a ticket but aren't needed immediately, and then logging. <laughs> he was like the last thing. It was like, no one wants to look at this, but keep it around for <laughs> for your diagnostics. There's also the interesting where he talks about emergency response and the, the difference. We're defining reliability as the as a function of mean time to failure and a mean time to repair, like how long can a system stay up and how long does it take to bring it back up after it fails? Any thoughts on that? Anyone? Yeah, that MTTR and MTTF are like, especially MTTR, like I've ser- seen other people refer to that as response rather than repair. Mm. So it's because um, I've seen a lot of articles talking about that MTTR as a response being used as a metric to determine how well they're doing right. and to have it be here as a repair. It, it kind of threw me off. <laughs> yeah. When, how long, how long does it take to bring the system back up? Or, I mean, I had a recent uh, storage system failure and I had several layers of, 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 of data availability and uh, you know, designed for when the main systems go down is like, okay, I always like the degrade gracefully from the, my ancient web development days where if the website wasn't able to be understood properly by the browser, you know, some code is not understood, the data should still be there. And I try to apply that principle with other systems like storage. If the main storage goes down, is the data still available very quickly and easily from some other way? <laughs> you know, it's like not all systems have that. If you have a bunch of Linux servers in the cloud, you know, how quickly can you get those servers up, those VMs up, that service and the services that are running up? Uh, you know, what are the related systems? You know, are there identity systems or scripts that need to run or uh, configuration management tools that <laughs> need to uh, fire off properly or detect down systems. Um, you mentioned uh, VMs, but like the thing that I like struggle with to apply these principles about like serious reliability is like a VM is not as complicated as like Google's infrastructure where they have like a hundred services and like centralized DNS and like automatically restarting containers. Like, my team just doesn't have such complex infrastructure. So like creating nearly infinite reliability is, is much harder when your service runs on like a single VM. Mm. They become very, very important systems that have to be up and there's not a, a huge backup uh, backup system or a parallel system or a failover system. Or... But also the way they describe these like really complex systems like Kubernetes and Borg, it's like it took them years to develop that stuff. Um, and... To some extent, I'm still living in like the Stone Age with uh, EC2. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people are still running servers on-prem. Others are running it in hosting providers, which is it's almost not quite like being on-prem, but you're still dependent on somebody else's server room. <laughs> you know, uh, when Amazon goes down, if 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 you're not if your entire infrastructure doesn't go down, then parts of it do. What if your, you know, your point of sale system, you know, what if you're using like some kind of like software, you know, billing as a service, like there's tons of companies that do that, right? Or 
you know, <laughs> maybe your downloads for your software or some part of your your um, your service is dependent on X Y Z cloud that's gone down <laughs> or just a part of it. It's getting complicated to uh, wrangle all these various infrastructure bits, especially if they're scattered everywhere. Yeah, I think the book brought up a good point about availability and inter- determining what what it is that's important for your whatever system that you're running as far as availability goes, like determining how that is for your environment. And how to, how to measure it or how to just to define it? I think just determining what is the level of availability we need to have to keep people happy. I think uh, the book was kind of stating that people 100% isn't, you know, is not going to happen. <laughs> so like what, what right. is it that it needs to be? Right. But also I, w- I was like complaining about I'm being, I'm in the stone age with EC2, but some of those services, it doesn't matter if they go down occasionally or even long periods uh, because I'm not going to have a ton of people yelling at me about it, but other services are more important, um, which is like users define what availability <laughs> should be, not, not your dreams about SRE. <laughs> Yeah, like what services uh, are people running that need to be up all the time? Yeah, I guess identity management. You know, you know, people are logging into systems. Like, can they can they be verified, authenticated? Yeah, it's a fun day when our identity provider has an outage. Mm. Is there a metric defined for what time do we? When do we just decide to go to the bar or leave? You know, I mean, if identity is down, right? (laughs) No one's logging in or. If you're well, online. we had that happen last week when uh, our netcom team took DNS down about a quarter five. So that was definitely beer time. <laughs> Critical services down. We're not in charge of it. We're going to the bar. Yep, that was a literally. I'm. I'm. I'm gonna go home. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, when this storage system that I, I was helping out recently went down. They're like, when's it going up? I'm like, when the power comes back, we'll deal with the storage. It's like, like one one service level at a time. You know, it's like lights need to be on, power needs to be on, internet, and then and then your then your layers of service. What do people think about change management and how important is that? It's more important when your systems aren't in source control. Mm. It's a big pain point for my team. Is like some of our systems just can't be put in source control right now. And we're, we just complain about having to do the paperwork of filling out change management, but it's super important because that's the only way to document if it's not in like Git history. Right. Yeah. How do you, can you get version control, a whole jam cloud, you know? I mean, if you're trying to, then you're, you're like already beyond the use case of jam, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, I know people have done it with Monkey, right? You know, with Monkey config files or, uh, you know, even with Git LFS with the, the apps. But I, th- I think Monkey, like, is designed so that you can do that. Like, you're not, you're not using it incorrectly if you do that stuff with Monkey. Right. There's no uh, Java server in the back, where, <laughs> back end somewhere that you have to patch with Log4j infinitely. Yeah, I mean, he had three little points about, you know, best practices for change management automations, like implementing progressive rollouts. That seems uh, uh, very important. Quickly and accurately detecting problems, as well as rolling back changes safely. First time I, had, I tried to roll back changes from Monkey, I was kind of confused. It's it's doable, but not easy. So, And you were saying that there was a system at your work that had a good rollback system 
right, Brandon? I think recently, like the Mac Ops team at Google was on Mac Admin Monthly, and they were okay. talking about how they used their internal one for better rollbacks than Monkey. Um, like, I really hope that they talk about that at a conference talk. But um, mm. yeah, I agree with you. Like, rollbacks in Monkey are not that straightforward, uh, but they're probably more straightforward than some other tools we mentioned, like Jamf. Yeah, no. Implementing some kind of change management for anything that has configuration files or how, how do you automate uh, that kind of stuff? And then there's the quickly and accurately detecting problems. I mean, that comes into a, like a monitoring uh, situation. How how do people love monitoring and their monitoring tools? Yeah, the, the detecting the problems is, um, is challenging, <laughs> at least in a Mac-specific environment since we use Jamf here. I don't have the right answer for this. <laughs> like what? what's an example of a problem that's hard to monitor that you're running into? Oh, like when we were having, we couldn't tell if uh, Jamf admin, we have people, we have, we have a number of different people across our campus and we had people using Jamf remote this week and they were having issues. So we're de- trying to determine if the problem was DNS related, ding, ding or um, something else going on. So that's a, that, that would be one example of us trying to find a problem. And it was not either quickly or accurately detected. <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, what are people actually using for uh, monitoring? That's a good question. I know in the past I've used uh, Watchman monitoring in the past, but now mostly, uh, well, I'm definitely using a monkey report for endpoints, which is gives a ton of information and it's easy to write modules for anything. And then, you know, lots of different tools from, uh, for servers and stuff. Uh, so uh, potentially spicy question about monkey report. Is it able to page you if something goes wrong or is it just like a dashboard? It is just a dashboard right now. There's a version, version six, which has been in infinite uh, development uh, time. <laughs> in, in that open source sort of world uh, that uh, it's developed in spare time. But yeah, the people have hacked notifications onto version five, but version six has got built in like modern PHP to Slack and everything else notifications. Um, but yeah, version six is not out yet. No, so right now it's just a dashboard. So, um, but yeah, for alerting, I've been using like uh, open source, like there's Zabbix, uh, PRTG, uh, you know, there's lots of them. Lots of ones, but uh, uh, also been using combinations of like I was using Central for a while, which has a great ingest of Watchman, Monkey, you know, uh, and other data and OS Query data. I've been playing with Fleet DM as well for OS Query stuff, but uh, you know, there's there's it's always good to look at all these different tools because they can give you different insights and different abilities to alert. And also it depends on what you're monitoring, whether it's uh, like whether you're developing the software that you're monitoring or you're monitoring like a third-party closed source product. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've worked uh, like certain third-party software has have APIs. So then you can try and build stuff to talk to those servers, services, software with APIs. And I've played with that in the past um, and present with APIs. That's a, trying to write some software talking to APIs right now. And that's a whole lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Is the API docs any good? <laughs> Yeah, it, it can always depend, and and I find when when it's possible, where it's possible to talk to people who wrote those APIs is also useful. Sometimes to clarify silly questions you might have, 
other times, like I've like I've been uh, looking at other things, like there's you know like uh, Airtable, which has uh, good stuff, good docs. Um, but yeah, for you know private software, being able to have a communication, uh, if you know, or if it's an internal team, if they have APIs, you know, but internal or external software, if they have APIs and docs, then sometimes. It feels like a machine printed out the APIs, which is fine. But if you can talk to a human to ask them what they were meant by that, you know, if you don't, you know, like, or how do you do X, Y, and Z? It, you, know, you know, maybe the examples aren't perfect, or you know, maybe there's something missing. Uh, it's all I, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just old. I just like talking to people sometimes. Go, so you wrote this in the API doc? What does that mean? You know, so. <laughs> no, I've definitely done the same. Like I was working with, I mean, not really related to SRE, but I was working with like the Azure SDK in Go. And I found like a Slack channel where some of the developers, and it's so much easier to like understand the code, even though it's on GitHub, it's much easier to understand when I could just ask them a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think by law, we have to be able to ask as, uh, as many dumb questions as people can tolerate sometimes, or even smart questions, you know, but that's for going to conferences in person and hopefully the virtual ones where you can meet people that it makes it easier to talk to or just find friendly places where they hang out, whether it's Discord, Slack, or other. Yeah, trying to build those communities uh, and finding communities where they're receptive to questions. I think I saw somebody, was it Fergus? Somebody posted on Twitter about how he loved the Mac and Slack or something because he was able to ask some questions or, you know, being able to help help each other in, understand these systems and different systems and different software. and. Um, I always was impressed by OS query, but always found mental struggles trying to deal with how to use it properly. So being able to talk to people that work with OS queries always helped. Back to change management. So accurately detecting problems, always ongoing. I think that was a question. Was that from you, uh, BP? You were talking about the detecting problems? Yeah. So, I mean, the re- what I was trying to get at is like um, in order to, you know, quickly and accurately detect these problems, I guess, uh, what tools are you actually using to do that? And that, that's why I asked, like, oh, what are people actually using to, to monitor? Uh, at my last job, um, I had a, a co-worker who came in and, um, you know, we, it was good in, in the sense of what he implemented, which was uh, some sort of monitoring. But the way it was set up and configured made so much noise to the point where it was useless, right? So... We couldn't mm. really tell if it was a real problem or like if it was just like noise because of mis- a misconfiguration on the monitoring tool itself. So, you know, I was just yeah. curious. Yeah. I mean, that brings a related point. It's like if you're either new to a team or there's just so much stuff that you have to deal with, uh, getting an alert or a notification is also very useful when paired with a either playbook, run book or action item like, okay. Something says X, Y, Z. Now what do I do? You know, it's like, like, how do I remediate this? Or how do I fix this problem? Or how do I address it? Whether it's good documentation or it's in the alert. Like, to address this issue, we go here and check this. And, you know, um, those are always appreciated. Yeah, I was actually thinking about playbooks uh, when they brought it up. Uh, that's a, an interesting um, approach to, I guess, handling all the issues that come up. Because there are going to be circumstances of things that uh, you're not going to document have documented but you need to know how to deal with 
as opposed to Monkey Report, when I was using Watchmen, which is like a, a series of plugins and lots of great stuff in there, I found that it does email you. But I found I just ended up just putting everything that emailed me into Dev Null, and I was never looking at it because it was just too much. So that was a failure, <laughs> you know. Right. You know, and then I know when I I, I wrote uh, some plugins for Watchmen and Monkey Report with uh, some programmer uh, friends, uh, you know, the question was always like, how do we design this to report on XYZ information? You know, like say with P5 with backup software, it's like, was it failing? Was it working? You know, just for an example, you know, you need to find and detect something and then present it to the person, which is, you know, when I'm designing it, it's going to be for me. I'm like, what is the actionable piece of information and what do I need to know? you know, in this alert or what's important to know so that I know, you know, either I need, uh, I know it's, it's obvious what I need to remediate or it gives me the steps to, oh, to remediate this, you do X, Y, and Z, you know, it's, it's gotta be actionable and not just like, if it's, if it's just like noise, then just go into logging and never look at it. Don't ping me on a Slack channel. If I, if there's nothing I can do about it. Right. If something happens, then I can look back and go, oh, right. These people couldn't log in because X, Y, and Z, it's been logged. Okay. Now we can put some pieces together. But if it's not an emergency or there's nothing that I can do about it, or then don't, don't put it in my face. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a maybe slightly different example, but we ran into something similar recently where one of our services was like reaching out to an API and getting a certain error code. And we realized that if we got that error code in particular, we could just retry instead of alerting. And so we like holistically reduced the amount of alerts we were getting and our service was even better. And so like a lot of times we reduce alerts by just adding more code, like more for loops, basically like retry if you, if you can, instead of telling us and then it succeeds. Yeah. Well, and that, that kind of splits the line of, a, a strictly reporting and monitoring service versus like actionable code or remediation based on on that reporting or, or that monitoring, right? Yeah, that's a good because a lot of a lot of SNMP type services, uh, you know, will tell you, will alert you, but you can't. You have to have some other system to remediate that problem or or what have you. Yeah, this is a good good to point out the difference between monitoring, alerting, and and remediation. But also, we have to make sure that uh, the monitoring and alerting is not just noise. And but that's that's difficult to do because it's like, what is the most important thing? And they they kind of call it out though in, in um, the book, right? They they say they say that there's three kinds of uh, valid monitoring outputs: uh, the alerts, which require immediate action. Tickets, which I guess can be handled at some point in the future mm-hmm. um, by some human. And then logging, which is, you know, logged for the purposes of if someone needs to look at this at some point for troubleshooting in the future, then it's there mm-hmm. for them, but not, yeah. to, not anything to act on at the moment. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that because it, it, you need to be able to triage. You have to prioritize your time and you have to prioritize what needs action. So I think... The uh, the red alert uh, is the things that we need to do. Yeah, I think some of the reporting can be tweaked to adjust that signal to noise ratio based on post mortems that are done on other incidents. So as you mm. gain more experience with the systems and have incidences, and then do post mortems on that, you can say, you know, we just don't need to be alerted on this, or maybe these three things need to happen 
for us to actually have an actionable alert or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, that brings up a good point. I mean, you know, we need to be able to look at postmortems and and analyze what happened, you know, even in the smaller events, because we can maybe improve the situation or, or fix the real problems, you know, uh, you know, this talk about root causes, but you know, maybe an alert gives you some uh, points to documentation to to remediate a, an issue, and then maybe uh, some scripts get written and fired to fix a problem. But then you have to stop and think: okay, what is the larger issue, and can we do we need to re-architect something, or fix something, or change the way things are done so that a these error messages don't come back, and b the system is actually working better. <laughs> well, there you're talking about the difference between like mitigation, which is like stop the bleeding. Uh, like tune the alert and then long-term resolution is like redesign something so that that incident definitely never happens again. Yeah. I want it all. <laughs> Having it all is hard. Redesigning <laughs> systems is, is hard. It requires so much time, but I, yeah. Agree. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just, yeah, you got to create your own tech debt. You know, you're, you're fixing other people's code and systems that they built. And then you have to build new systems that, Someone else will have to fix. <laughs> well, that's most of chapter one. Talked about some other higher end stuff at the end. Provisioning, combining change management and capacity planning, and then efficiency and performance. Those are some big topics, big topics. Yeah, adding new capacity. How do you know when your systems need more, more storage, more systems, bigger systems, better systems? Or are you building skeleton systems that you're going to change or grow or how do you know when to when do you need to know when you need to either either re-architect or just grow it bigger anyone with thoughts on that i think for me i just like don't have complex enough systems to like have a good answer to this question yet uh, or you, you just over provision everything right like the servers are just more than good enough <laughs> probably <and> that too <laughs> the tendency is to over provision and or just keep adding or throwing resources at at it. It's so easy now since it's other people's servers and services that you just go into Amazon and add another server or have it spin up more servers to handle the load instead of like fixing the code or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, just add more block storage. Keep growing your storage, right? One petabyte or more is available. Back, backups are for jumps. <laughs> just um, out of curiosity, um, and, and if you guys are able to share, what are some of the um the services that you guys are responsible for making sure that uh, they have sufficient resources allocated to them where you would need to like consider things like uh, you know for capacity purposes for for you know increasing the capacity if you need to well i mean there's a bunch of uh, linux servers in the cloud and uh, you know uh, they have backup systems so you know sometimes provisioning means determining whether they need more storage for those backups or more time for the backups or the backups need to be re-architected to <laughs> happen faster and better. <laughs> or uh, maybe we need more uh, web servers and Linux servers when the uh, security software is, is, uh, is, <laughs> is using too much CPU and we need other servers to actually do work. I was just thinking like for things like Jamf, you know, like if you're, or if you're using other uh, cloud managed services, like I'm wondering how how much this uh, applies to you because I guess essentially this particular problem is just essentially being uh, outsourced to another company. 
depending on the, the service you're, you're using, but that you're essentially responsible for within your company to an extent. Um, an MDM obviously being like the, the obvious example where most of that is usually going to be outsourced by most vendors. Coincidentally, I was going to say like my example of a service that I need to do this for is MDM because we run our own. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. You guys running micro? Yeah. Maybe maybe one day we'll investigate uh, Nano, but like Micro has served us pretty well. Yeah, if you're using outsourced MDM, like I, I I like simple MDM, but you know if Amazon goes down, then you know simple MDM could go down, or you know vice versa for other MDM uh, vendors. Arguably, like AWS's SREs are pretty good, though. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> um, but you know, we just need MDM to be up long enough to deploy those things because you know it's not config management; it's just deploy once, right? <laughs> just, just need your devices. You don't need to. You just need to be not provisioning new devices when the MDM goes down. And you know, as somebody who's tried to help learn and teach other people through the Mac DevOps conference, I I, I asked the question: What is the best way to teach a generation, a new generation of Mac DevOps, uh, Mac SRE, SRE DevOps? How do we teach? people who have fallen into IT like us maybe, or some of us, how do you teach people how to become software engineers, you know, in this sense of maintaining systems and automating and writing code? And how do we teach people? Can we do it with a DevOps conference? Can we do it with TikToks? How do we teach people? <laughs> how do people learn? <laughs> Brandon? Conferences are, are a good start, but that's like the age old question, right? Like, I think everyone in the industry is trying to answer this question. I need answers. <laughs> For me, it was like I I happen to have the opportunity to work with people who were already well accomplished SREs. So having and, a good team. Yeah, and like now it's like applying those principles from the previous job from those SREs to my current work. But yeah, just like talking to people about the problems that they're solving and how they like like formalize them into DevOps and SRE principles. Mm-hmm. Just talk to people who've like been through this journey and like yeah. conferences and social media are a great way. Yeah. So there's um in when I guess it comes to teaching guests in general, there's uh three methods that I've heard of that certain people kind of fall into for how they best learn. And I'm not sure if you can apply to what you know your question, but it might help. Um there's people that learn by actually doing and so, you know, that's, that's one method, like actually have them do whatever the task is that they're supposed to be doing and, and learning. And that might be a little harder with DevOps work, but it's one method. The other one is simply listening. Some people are listeners. They don't need to take notes down. They, if they just focus 100% of their attention listening, they can like absorb all that knowledge and like probably ask better follow-up questions because they're actively listening. And some people learn best by like writing things down so i know when i've uh, taken programming classes uh one of the things that like instructors have emphasized in the past is instead of copying and pasting code which is very easy to do it's good to get into the habit of like typing things out like you know so you get into that you start building that sort of muscle memory and you kind of figure out what not to do because some people don't understand like spaces are important or you know (laughs) a a hyphen needs to go before this text and like there can't be a space and stuff like that you know 
So like there are three methods essentially that I've heard of where people tend to fall in and you can use a combination of all of those. How do you apply that to a conference? I'm not sure. And especially like something (laughs) like DevOps, you know, but. Yeah. I mean, DevOps in the conference. I mean, yeah. I mean, when we, we try to inspire people and try to get people to be enthused and excited and, and show that, people have done things similarly and show, show themselves that they are capable of doing those things. But I think working with other people and if, if at a conference virtual or otherwise you can meet people that helps you to find people to talk to. And I definitely yeah. think definitely a lot of people learn on the job, but I know, I know I work better when I'm working actively with other people. And I know that would probably drive some people crazy, but I find working on code with other people together in some ways is better, but like yeah. pair coding or yeah 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 i've had really good experience with pair coding um recently. yeah and vs code has really good pair coding features i think uh, we need to figure out something like that somebody was mentioning that uh i think the pi uh pi cascades maybe I mean, it was jd was showing me it was like that they're doing a instead of like a hack night because you know that's difficult if you're virtual but they were going to try and do sprints or something so could do sort of something like that but also trying it's always tough to get people involved but trying to get people to work together or maybe build some small teams or and that's something new that i've been working with is the idea of these working, on, working on this agile thing where you work on a, a you know with a goal in mind for a certain sprint you know i'm, I'm used to being in it and looking after dumpster fires yes building systems architecting systems but also just looking for the next dumpster fire you know like what's the problem to fix now you know? yeah. Yeah, I think examples are always good. I mean, Mm -hmm. some of the frustration is just going to conferences and corporations have a little bit looser leash than what we have. And so I can sit in a conference session for the first five minutes and go, that's really cool and all, but there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to accomplish that with with red tape that we have. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to more learn from people and that have a similar either backgrounds or culture or whatever you want to call it organizational mm-hmm. culture yeah I, I i keep thinking of uh, like topics that i guess might my, my I, I haven't attended any of these conferences uh i just haven't had the time uh especially the last two years i i'm not the kind of person that can do things virtually the the attention is just it quickly goes and then you're working which makes it even harder yeah no <laughs> but I'm trying to think of like uh, the types of topics or sessions that like I personally would find pretty interesting. And it, it might be like surrounding like maybe tooling and getting to see things, you know, uh, conf- like configured from start to, to finish essentially and like how orgs might be using it. But obviously, you know, that's someone would need to like come up with that topic and, and share because... <laughs> I've never had the confidence to do this, but I've always thought about the value of like Twitch streaming, like uh, open source project start to finish. Mm. Cause then you could like a thing that I like don't do when I blog is really show how much I struggled getting from the start <laughs> to where the blog post ended. And I really want people to know, like <laughs> it, it takes a lot of work and that's okay. And like, you're going to bang your head against the desk for 10 hours to write one line that works. Um, but like, if I had the confidence to Twitch stream, it might like open that opportunity where you're talking about, like see something from start to finish. 
Maybe we'll have to start doing some of that on the Discord server, maybe. But I know um, Tim Perfit did some of that too. He was Twitch streaming some coding, but um, I know yeah, but he's a uh, accomplished yeah. coder. I know, but I, and and we had you know Tim Perfit and Joel in our hack nights, you know, uh, and it was great when we had it in person, and we could all you know break off in the teams and work on different things. And I think one week it was WWDC week as well. And so some people were looking at OS and file system APFS stuff and some people were looking and working on an app and, you know, and it's kind of neat. And <clears throat> I think it worked the first year we did it. And then last year it was a little more difficult to get people's attention. Just being able to work on a project together. Uh, that was kind of fun. You, you too can see how much I hit stack overflow for coding yeah. questions. I, I this recent <laughs> recent project I hit Stack Overflow so often that my M1 crashed. It just I think there's a RAM ceiling and I was like that was too many tabs of like example code. I literally went to my shelf and grabbed a book I hadn't touched in ten years on shell scripting. Maybe it was more than twenty years. Um, and I opened it and I was like, oh yes, it's a chapter. Okay, I'm going to reread some Ock stuff here. And it was actually better to read the book than to open another tab. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Yeah, I do that stuff too with the, except sometimes I'm doing stuff in Bash and I'll, I'll be like, hey, you know, Spouse, how do I do this? And he's like, well, if it was in Python, I'd be able to help you. But, you know, now you're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we need a Bash support group because, yeah, I'm still, Bash is back, man. Python is gone. Python's dead, man. Only data scientists use that. And no one does that. Um, yeah, no, um, <laughs> Bash is going to be the last, last uh, coding standing. Am I am I the only Mac admin who's like never written more than ten lines in Bash? Hmm. <laughs> well, we we can help. We can help. Yeah, I'll stick with Go and Python. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think some of the coding projects I've done recently, someone was like, I think it was even JD. He was just like, you know, that would be easier in Python, Matt. Why are you hurting yourself? <laughs> like, I'm like, says you, it's easier in Python. This, I'm having fun. Awk, awk, as said, said, you know, it's like, let me build a beautiful function here. I think that's uh, a, a lot of everyone's time that we've taken. Thanks, everyone, for joining us uh, on the uh, Mac DevOps book club, where we talk about the SRE uh, book. That was chapter one. Uh, maybe we can look at chapter two another week, maybe even next week. I don't know. Um, whatever people feel like, we can do it every couple of weeks. Um, also, if we find anything that sounds reasonable, we can mash a podcast out of it. If anybody's against well, that, chapter, let me know. Chapter or... two is pretty short. Can we just read it and come back in like an hour and talk about it? <laughs> come back <laughs> in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, What's you up, snuck in like... and uh, <laughs> yeah. It... <laughs> oh, man. Late is an understatement, sir. <laughs> The Mac DevOps YVR conference and podcast is looking for sponsors. Support and encourage developers in IT to work together to solve problems for our community by sponsoring Mac DevOps. If you're interested in sponsoring the Mac DevOps YVR conference and podcast, send an email to hello at mdoyvr.com. Thank you to our awesome Mac DevOps sponsors. Thank you to Simple MDM, our gold sponsor for Mac DevOps 2022. Thank you so much to everybody at Simple MDM for your support. We really appreciate it please find SimpleMDM at SimpleMDM.com. We look forward to more sponsors for our conference. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for the Mac DevOps podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to our co-hosts. Today's episode was edited by J.D. Strong. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast service. I've I've also written uh, more than ten lines in Bash, so. Uh... Oh man, you get we we need to like. 
we made these like monkey patches, like I, real I patches yeah. for one one year of the conference. Uh, one of my crazy ideas. Yeah, and I, my my whole plan was to try and make Boy Scout badges. But that was before the PS PSU uh, did the badges. But I wanted to do like merit badges, and I, we still can. Maybe we can do a. I've written more than ten lines of bash merit badge, and, and maybe <laughs> I, I I need one to encourage me to write some Python or Go. It's like, yay, Matt, you wrote your first Python script and it didn't crash. Or, Whenever or if much. ever we, we start uh, coming in person to Mac DevOps, uh, yeah. Well, we should start handing out sashes where people can get uh, random innocuous uh, badges about silly things they do in life. 